Hi everyone, I'd like to start this installment of the Primate Cast with a sad announcement. Lincoln Park Zoo in Chicago has just announced the passing on April 20th of Dr. Steve Ross, who is the director of the Lester E. Fisher Center for the Study and Conservation of Apes. Steve was a friend and colleague and someone I admire greatly, not only for his tireless efforts to protect chimpanzees in captivity and in the wild and bring awareness to issues surrounding the importance of practicing animal welfare, but also for his generous and supportive nature, which was really clear from the moment I met him. We had Steve on the Primate Cast twice, first on May 19th, 2013, during a visit to Japan, and again on October 4th, 2016, at the International Primatological Society Conference, which he himself hosted through Lincoln Park Zoo. It was an honor and a pleasure to have had those moments, among others, with him. For anyone interested, please check out those two interviews for a glimpse into his work and the legacy he'll leave behind. But Steve's passing is a huge loss for primatology, for animal welfare and advocacy, and of course, for all that knew him. So my heart truly and deeply goes out to his family. I'm incredibly sorry for your loss. Now, on this installment of the Primate Cast, Dr. Ikuma Adachi. Evolution. Communication. Cognition. Conservation. Behavior. Primatology. Primatology. Typically primates. Become the monkey. Okay, well then, welcome to the Primate Cast number 65, being released on Friday, April the 22nd, 2022. Before getting into today's interview with Dr. Ikuma Adachi, I have another unfortunate announcement from Kyoto University. Many of you may know already that the Primate Research Institute was recently restructured and no longer exists in its previous form or name. Now, the major research center in its place is called the Center for the Evolutionary Origins of Human Behavior, also known as eHub. EHUB is made up of three major departments, like the cognitive neuroscience, um, systems neuroscience, and genome science. And it retains its original two other centers, known as the Center for uh, Human Evolution Modeling Research, which manages the animals at our facility, and the Center for International Collaboration and Advanced Studies in Primatology, or PSYCASP, which is who continues to bring you the primate cast. But that also means that the Department of Ecology and Social Behavior and the Department of Evolution and Phylogeny have been relocated. Many of us from the Ecology and Behavior Group, including myself, are now members of Kyoto University's Wildlife Research Center, with others at the Center for Ecological Research. Members of the Evolution and Phylogeny Group have moved to the Kyoto University Museum. However, for the most part, we remain in Inuyama and collectively refer to this facility uh, as a whole as Kyoto University's Inuyama Campus. The Primate Research Institute was an historical institution with a rich 55-year history. Founded in 1967, it emerged as a world-leading institution for research into primatology and evolutionary anthropology, cognitive science and neuroscience, and primatological and anthropological genetics and genomics. I myself arrived on the scene as a fresh doctoral candidate in 2007, and I feel pretty privileged to have been part of this rich history for the past 15 years. Um, We and I hope that um, we can continue to add to the legacy of PRI and uphold the standards in research and scholarship um, of those who came before us with, within our new structure. Um, with that, though, I'd like to get into our interview with Dr. Ikumadachi. So he's associate professor at what's now known as eHub, or the Center for the Evolutionary Origins of Human Behavior. 
And in this interview, um, we've had Ikuma, by the way, a few times before on the Primate Cast. Um, in this particular interview, we start by talking about internationalization at Kyoto University. Ikuma is now, um, in addition to being associate professor in cognitive neuroscience, he's also the head of SciCASP. Um, so we talk about internationalization and the efforts that we've been part of and Kyoto University as a whole has been part of. And then we get more into what it's like to run a chimpanzee research lab. Um, in the context of that, we fall into Ikuma's work in comparative cognition, where we talk th about things like um, perception and the world we create with our brains. We get into his work on cross-modal processing of information through different sensory inputs. And so, for example, um, touch on why do we associate the color white with things that are high in pitch, uh, for example. He also introduces the idea of metaphorical mapping. Um, so how not only humans, but also chimpanzees seem to map concepts into space, like how we typically arrange things like numbers from left to right, and think of relationships in a social hierarchy from top to bottom. So you can think of uh, individuals at high ranks or in top positions in a company, for example, are usually represented in space, like either through a, di a diagram or chart or something like that, or even in your own mind, in a top-down manner um, as well. So we touched on this as well with Ikuma way back in March 2019 on the Primate Cast number 20, um, which we did from the annual Congress of the Japan Society for Animal Psychology. Um, so for anyone interested, you can check that out as well. Uh, I also wanted to dig into areas where Ikuma's work runs into bigger picture questions like the idea of human uniqueness and how our ideas about that uh, specific topic are constantly being challenged with the more we research and understand other minds. Um, we close out the interview with the importance of chimpanzees and cognitive studies with them here and other places and some efforts by Ikuma to promote such work and an understanding of the mind and the natural world to the public. So after a rather long preamble um, to the primate cast number 65, here's my interview with Dr. Ikuma Adachi. So Ikuma, welcome back to the Primate Cast. Thank you. I'm very happy to be back here. <laughs> no kidding. So ten, I think it was 10 years ago, maybe our second podcast that we released in 2012 with the members of the Center for International Collaboration and Advanced Studies in Primatology. Right. With uh, David, David and Hill, and uh, Fred, Fred Berkovich, yeah. and Chris Martin, who was one of the founders of the That's podcast. True. That's true. Yeah. And I mean, a lot's happened since then, uh -huh. for sure. <laughs> yeah. Too much, I guess. We but... might get back in. Uh, yeah. We'll get into that a bit later on. Sure. But, um, over that time as well, you, you were working in PsyCASP for a lot of those years, mm -hmm. but then um, stepped away for a time too. And now you're back as the <clears throat> head of the, or of the center or the director of PsyCASP. How are you feeling about being back? Um, it's, I don't know, I'm very happy. The meanwhile, <laughs> I feel like, you know, like a big gap definitely exists. Like, uh, I guess four or five years, I haven't touched anything about the PSYCASP. Mm -hmm. Although as a future planning committee, I know that what is going on in the PSYCASP mm -hmm. and always uh, very happy to see the progress there. Mm -hmm. But uh, I feel like something far from me all mm -hmm. the time. Um, but now I finally, finally come back to the PSYCASP um, and I'm very happy to see progress directly from my eyes mm -hmm. and um, also happy to plan for future because uh, all internationalization moving forward in everywhere in Japan, but not doesn't have to always go to the proper direction. Yeah, we see many struggle, but here you guys always working very well to just always supporting new students and international scholars, and 
we are kind of milestones to Kyoto University. Kyoto mm-hmm. University, some other department even ask us how you want to handle these issues. So I'm very proud of that. And、uh, we want to be on those edge always、mm-hmm. to just promoting the internationalization in the Kyoto University.、Mm-hmm. So I'm very happy to be part of it. Yeah, so there have been a lot of initiatives、um, by us, but also by the university to foster more、yes. international collaboration,、mm-hmm. bringing in a lot of、um, faculty with English、yes. teaching capacity to increase their curriculum, English language、right. education curriculum. But more broadly,、um, if you think of your time coming through, when, when did you first arrive at Kyoto University? As a student? As a student, or, yeah.、Uh, it's 1997. As an undergraduate?、Mm-hmm. Is that right? I guess so. That sounds about right, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Our timelines kind of overlap a little old bit. Old history,、yeah. right? <laughs> <laughs> But so, how much have you seen the university kind of change in that perspective towards internationalization?、Um, <clears throat> well, from the beginning, Kyoto University always tried to be open to the internationals and they want to welcome many international students as well. But the system wise, they Are not we ready for that? So, only who,、um, only those students who have practiced in Japanese a lot or the mixed、um, supported students、mm-hmm. can come to the、um, Kyoto University. And the faculty side or education side is more problematic and administration issues as well. So, all students need to get like, a lot of support from their lab members and also their friends、mm-hmm. in Japan. To, to go through those issues. And that shouldn't be easy.、Mm-hmm. But good things, of course, they are all motivated. That's why they apply to Japanese University or Kyoto University. And so they managed it, but like, still, I see many struggles there.、Mm-hmm. And、uh, now, I guess, educational side, at least they have many English courses taught. I mean, in, and many courses taught in English. and They have, I mean, plenty, or at least reasonable number of、uh, international faculties、mm-hmm. that they can access to. So I, th- I feel it's more open, even more open than before.、Mm-hmm. Although, still, like for faculties and those all systems as a package,、uh, it can be improved, though. Yeah.、Mm. Yeah. And then, specifically for our institution here,、um, and maybe we can get to just The elephant in the room, which is that we are no longer calling it the Primate Research Institute, the、true. Evolutionary Center for the Origins of Human Behavior.、Mm-hmm. But even when it was the PRI,、um, <clears throat> we've probably always, but certainly in the last decade or two get decades, had、mm-hmm. quite a big uh, um, group of international students, postdocs, researchers,、um, visiting professors,、mm-hmm. and faculty as well. And、uh, that's also true for your lab, which is mainly the、um, The Chimpanzee Cognition, Comparative、mm-hmm. Cognitive Lab. So, in that sense, how have you kind of seen the evolution of your research group、uh, in the context you know, of internationalization, but also just how that fits into the scheme of your research? That's interesting. It's slightly different from like a general perception toward、mm-hmm. the Kyoto University internationalization, because the Chimpanzee Lab itself is quite unique. In the world, actually.、Mm-hmm. So, we have a couple more people, a、um, couple more places that you can work on the chimpanzees' cognitions. But、um, here is one of those、uh, most known places for the chimpanzee cognition. That's why it's already attracted many internationals、mm-hmm. from the almost early stage of the lab. 
And that's why we have so many international students try to, you know, come to the PRI or, I mean, the chimpanzee lab, like, you know, Matsuzawa, <coughs> Professor Matsuzawa's initiative to get more internationalization of the institute is safe, which is actually the good things, you know, because mm-hmm. he has eyes for like internationalization from the beginning because lab is already attract so many internationals. Yeah. He want to have a system to support them and that's expanded the whole PRI. So the dynamics there wasn't bad things at all, yeah. I guess. So keeping the uh, like the international part of it aside, mm-hmm. um, I'm kind of curious about just how how you see chimpanzee labs in general being run, or how like what are the main differences that you because you've also seen uh, other cognitive labs abroad um, mm-hmm. in the U.S. maybe and also in Europe. Mm-hmm. Um, so what are the kind of like major differences in the style of management and the the kinds of things done here in Japan at the former PRI and uh, and what you see elsewhere? Um, Good question. Um, the biggest probably difference the um, is the division of labor, the way of the division of labor, mm-hmm. especially when it comes to the animal lab. Um, always you have to have those tasks for taking care of the animals mm-hmm. and the uh, researchers is kind of separate from that. Um, and the in the Western culture, Western, I mean, not culture, Western University, I guess, including states, they have a clear division and the, they have an enrichment team, they have those keepers team and they we have a researcher side. Of course, we're gonna communicate together to make it better as a package, but like still we see like who is in charge is quite like a deviated or differentiated in, in, the, area, in the university. Um, here, we also have a human modeling, human evolution modeling center, which is take care of the old primates. Mm-hmm. But uh, all researchers' involvement in the keeping and the enrichment is quite playing a big role, I guess. Because uh, um, human evolution modeling center provide the basic for the keeping um, management or management of the animals, which is very nice. I mean, in that sense, it's very similar to the Western countries and much better than many other Japanese institute, I guess, because mm. uh, I, I, I'm I not 100% sure for the other part of the Japanese institute, but I heard that like, uh, researchers even more heavily involved in those activities. But here, um, the modeling center basically um, in charge of management. So responsibility-wise, it's more clearly uh, split, but yet they provide basics, but if you want to give them an enriched uh, environment, mm-hmm. then researchers should really pay for that and they need to get their own research grant to cover it. Because uh, for us, um, we we work on the cognitive abilities in the chimpanzees. Mm-hmm. And to think about uh, cognitive abilities, that cannot be expressed in the very poor condition or that cannot be developed under the very poor condition. So they have to be in a good condition and preferably should be close to natural wild setup as much as possible. Of course, it's captivity. There's a limitation, but at least need to be toward that direction to get their natural response to the environment and the stimuli. Mm-hmm. So we we put a lot of effort to do that. And uh, that's something we researchers have to do it by ourselves in, in this um, place, mm-hmm. which is, I mean, understandable, which is okay. But like, uh, if we talk about difference, probably who is in charge of thinking about that yeah. is different. Yeah. yeah. 
so here it's like the lab need to think about I mean management part and the enrichment and research part that's right. a kind of like more inclusive in the sense I guess. yeah and, and I guess it ties into too how the lab was formed with the kind of participant observation right aspect to it where mm -hmm. a lot of the former um, researchers would yes. spend a lot more time with the animals that you right. might not see in other other right. places yeah so kind of related to that, this kind of a two-part question, the, and then I want to get into your research specifically mm -hmm. um, and your group's research, but when you have this, uh, rather coldly, we can call it a resource, but when you have these um, amazing animals like the chimpanzees as your subjects mm -hmm. of study, um, but there's obviously a limited number of them and there's a limited amount of space that you have access to, and at some points your lab was actually quite huge. so. And this ties into the management thing. But the, the first question is, how do you manage what people are doing in terms of their research mm -hmm. and kind of split split the or like manage how, how active the chimpanzees need to be in their studies? I know these chimps love to do the experiments, so that's not like you have to. Well, right. I mean, more or less. The, yeah. For the motivation part of the chimpanzees, we don't have to be worried. Right. At least we haven't had worried anything for a long time. Right. Because they're getting old a bit. So possibly from now on, we need to worry about that mm -hmm. uh, to some extent. But for the management of the research topic of the each researchers here in, in the lab, we actually don't do so much mm -hmm. control because uh, we try to encourage people to develop their own research questions. And the, as a lab, we help them to develop it. We help them to um how can i say the preparing the environment for the research questions or the technology for the questions mm -hmm. but the question is should itself should be from their own motivation that's what we think because mm -hmm. uh um for the researchers without the interest or motivation self-motivation it's very difficult to proceed because mm -hmm. a majority of the work is very how can i say like uh it's it's not really super exciting you know the work that you have to do because mm -hmm. always daily basis you go down to the lab and then training animals for like several months to get the data and then writing paper so many many of those works should be possible only when you are very motivated to proceed the research mm -hmm. so to to how can i say encourage people or students to keep your their own motivation we always encourage them to develop their own research questions. So um, generally, we haven't asked to ask them to do whatever like we want to do. Sure. Of course, they are joining our classes. Yeah. Means their interest can be affected by our own interest. Yeah, of course. And in a seminar or in in a general reading club, always we discuss. So that can be, you know, a stimulus for them. But um, we don't specifically direct them to any any way, any direction. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like in Kyoto University, this is definitely the case. Um, but there's that philosophy where all of the incoming students right. are supposed to find their own way. I have heard people, uh, you know, within the ecology and behavior group, mm -hmm. you almost send a new master student into the forest and right. say, okay, oh, yeah, that, that was, watch yeah. some animals and then think of something interesting. <laughs> and that don't you're come interested back in. until you find something interesting. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's a classical uh, yes. Yeah, maybe with, it doesn't need to be so threatening, but just the idea where you, you know, put somebody out in the context. And, right. Without having that experience, they a lot of the the faculty here feel like it's impossible mm -hmm. to come up with any kind of an idea. But I I wondered if it was similar in the chimpanzee lab because you have, uh, you know, if you just imagine sending someone out into a forest, mm -hmm. 
it's very it's much less constrained of course than anyone coming here to work in a small True. space True. you know with multiple people and so well, i was kind of curious about that process yeah so i guess for that since i mean general reading club or seminar and then listening about the other students research topic mm -hmm. or from the faculty that'll be definitely the seed for them to think about what can be the interesting topic mm -hmm. and then we don't really ask them to rethink re about the um, absolute experiment plans mm -hmm. simply what kind of topic can be interesting for you mm -hmm. for them and if they hit on like some broad idea so here is the area of the interest that you know I, I probably want to proceed mm -hmm. then we can do some literature search together or I, I mean not me rereading all literature by, the, by myself mm -hmm. but asking them to find some research um, or papers related to it and then slightly dig into the topic and then specify which in the area can be more interesting for them mm -hmm. and practical side for like experiment paradigm and the technology and those are always you know we can help them to develop it mm -hmm. we all have those you know like uh, techniques basically in mm -hmm. the lab so um, that can be shared quite mm -hmm. easily but most difficult part is what I mean finding the research interest in a broad sense doesn't have to be like a one specific idea, but like right. which area of research can be very interesting for them. Okay. So we'll come back to like mentorship and education a bit later, but <clears throat> I think now's a good time to get into what you do. So um, maybe following up on what you just said, how did you come to your own research topic? And That's... did it happen early or what was the process there? Well, I don't know like in which level you want to get uh, <laughs> sorry, but like You I'm... can start wherever you like. Yeah, the very first uh, moment that I get interested into those uh, animal cognition is uh, when I was in high school students. Mm -hmm. um, second year of the high school students, high school, I I need to um, find which university I want to go, because uh, my high school was quite oriented to the university. I don't know how to say that, like uh, promoting like in people to just get the, into the good university. Mm -hmm. So they have a good system to supporting students to find their interest to proceed to the university. So in the second year, beginning of the second year, they got like all interview for the students. So what you want to do in the university? They don't care about like a name or level of the university, but simply what you what do you want to do in I the see. university? It's kind of rare because mm -hmm. um, uh, many on the time at least many high school in Japan kind of co compete each other like a which high school can send more students to good university yeah and uh, for that sense I really you know I was happy that you know I was in that environment even though that high school is very ranked very high even this year it's ranked on 12th or something like that oh, wow. it's quite nice but like they don't force us to go to the good university they only care about what we want to learn there mm -hmm. And there I start to think about um, what I want to do. Initially, actually, I thought I want to be a vet. Mm. And uh, I look up what is a requirement. And the half, I'm not really good at in the math. <laughs> <laughs> but the vet required the math. But I'm good at um, math for the, how can I say, the people who is taking like uh, humanity side, humanity course side. Okay. And that's a one one part of it, the reason. But more, what I found on the time is to be a vet, you need to kill many animals to learn about their yeah. mechanism. Right. I do understand that's very important procedure, 
and uh, yes, by by killing them by um, how do you that? Kaibo, kaibo. Yeah, doing the the necropsy. A necropsy, yeah. so you can learn their body mechanisms and so on and so forth. That's quite important. But to me, I wanna be a bit to save the animals, and to be that you have to kill so many animals to learn about them. And I, when I was young, you know, I couldn't just take it. Now, if I have a chance to think about it again, maybe I still want to <laughs> go to the bed. But uh, on the time, it's very difficult for me to handle that. How can I say the conflict in 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 interest and also what you have to do? And then I looking up the whole list of the university and those not the whole, but I mean list of the university and their department information. I found out the newly launched up the lab in Kyoto University, which is a comparative cognition lab. And it says we can make the scientific approach to the animal mind. Hmm. It was interesting to me because for me, it's psychology and mind is something it's very difficult for us to scientifically approach. Yeah. But uh, I, especially for the animal side, because they don't speak, they don't, you know. Um, so it's very interest. It it in, interest me and um, catch my interest, and I looked at more and I actually download a couple papers from the PI there, mm-hmm. who um, whose name is Kazuo Fujita, and just I was fascinated by the, you know the methodology and it's simple behavior t- experiment, uh, actually, but like uh, just how to make a story out of those data yeah. and. After that, I just get into the more, I mean, get into or get more interest into the animal psychology area. Mm-hmm. And that's how I get into uh, the Kyoto University and also specifically the uh, uh, faculty of letters. And I actually worked with Kazo, Professor Kazo Fujita there and got PhD there. So that's the first point why I get into the field and topic. Um, my research interest itself is quite broad. I mean, one main one. I mean, main one is like a language evolution. Yeah. Because when you think about like a human uniqueness, I mean, people can easily hit on language. One of the biggest difference from the other animals, possibly. Um, but to me, I have had so many pets in my house for a long time, and I always wondering what they are thinking, and the, what is the way of their communication. I know that there is a communication skill to them and they have many signals that they can express and um, but uh, getting to more interest what is the substantial difference uh, from the language communication to the their own way of the communication mm-hmm. and how it can be even developed or evolved and that's why the language is one big question to me and the Another one is social skill, because uh, again, it's connected to language. But with the language, we are expanding the size of the so- uh, social groups and also structure getting more complex. Um, but without a language, how they can manage their social life? Mm-hmm. So those two are connected, but uh, two main research questions to me. Mm-hmm. So it's like partly because I give up the bet and then when I get into <laughs> the more scientific approach to the mind, and among the mind, what really attract my interest is communication in a broad sense but one it's few are uh, falling to the language evolution yeah the other is more like a non-language communication yeah, yeah. i think a big part of that too is the percep- 
perception and yeah. perceptual abilities of, of animals. It's, it's interesting. I was listening to a podcast this morning with, uh, I guess, a, a professor emeritus mm -hmm. at the University of California, Irvine, Donald Hoffman. Mm. Yeah, you, yeah, okay. Yeah, so he was talking about consciousness and, and, and human perception and um, made the interesting point that, I guess through a bunch of simulations that he and colleagues and students have done, the probability that what we perceive is the truth or is reality is basically zero, which, uh, and, and the, the reason for that is it evolves by natural selection. So there's a very yeah. specific reason why we perceive the things we do because yeah. they help us survive exactly. and, yeah. and reproduce. And I thought it was, an, um, it's quite interesting, right? It is quite interesting. Yeah. And, I, and I think, yeah, for, for people who study biology and evolution and, and certainly um, cognition, it's, uh, it, it definitely fits with what we're, we're thinking. Yeah, but, uh, exactly. I mean, in my class, always I say that we just perceive the created world. Yeah. So there is nothing that, you know, exactly the same as what you perceive. We just extract a couple information yeah. out of the environment yeah. and we create a world in our brain. Yeah. And we feel that's a world. Yeah. But if you extract different information, that can be completely different. Yeah. So, I mean, even within human, there is a difference. But if it across the species it can be more different, depending on natural selection, as you said. Yeah. So yeah, perception is playing a lot of I mean, important roles, I guess. Yeah. And so I guess some of your research interfaces with that, like how uh, maybe related to how animals pick up signals and, and get information about right. the environment and their social worlds and things. But so one of the topics that you study uh, quite a lot is cross modal representation. Mm -hmm. So can mm -hmm. you maybe just introduce what that means and right well cross model means cross sensory modality information processing um so initially what i did is kind of connected from the concept because uh, again language is one of the big uh functional languages categorization categorizing item and then treat those items equally within the same category mm -hmm. And uh, we also put a label on it so that we can simplify the information to just, you know, better hold in your memory. And uh, why I started getting interested into the concept is it's very difficult to prove that animals have the concept similar to humans because of the, most of the studi studies previously done on the time is uh, they use bunch of similar stimuli and then prove that they can group those stimuli for example, like they pre uh, presented many pictures of pigeons and other animals and then trained them to differentiate those two categories and they can do it based on whatever cue they use. Mm -hmm. And of course, as many studies try to focus on what is actually the cue that they focus on, mm -hmm. which is nice I and mean, which is a very good way to access to their perceptual grouping. But perceptual similarity is not the important things for human category. I mean, it's important, but it's not only one mm -hmm. cue that we use. Even more, we have functional category, for example, like a tool, food, which share the same function, but not looking similar to each other. Right. But you can still group it. And there is some stream of this uh, animal study also working on this functional categorization as well. But I think uh, cross-modal concept would be another way that you can um, directly tackle on this topic because voice and face, for example, of the same species cannot be look similar to each other because yeah. it's totally different modality information. But if they group it automatically or spontaneously, that can be good evidence that you know they integrate information into a category. Mm -hmm. 
So that's the starting point mm -hmm. um, for me to in get interested in cross-modal information processing. And recently, I work on a little bit different uh, way for the cross-modal processing, which is which I call cross-modal correspondences. And that is not really the category, but uh, it's more connected to like uh, tuning of the perception or natural selection that you mentioned. But for human case, let's say some information in one modality can bring the automatic some secondary experience for the another modality. Mm -hmm. Let's say when you hear the higher pitch sound and you are facing two different color in front of you, one is black, one is white, and then you are asked, let's say, which one is you, you uh, which do you think fit better to right. the sound? And then majority of the people, I don't want to say 100%, but majority of people saying, mm, if I have to force, or if I'm forced to choose one of them, higher pitch sound should go with white better. Mm -hmm. And there is no reason to do that. Mm -hmm. But somehow we are sorting audio, auditory information, and then visual information separately, but some shared aspect there connect those two modalities. Right. And people start to think about why this happens. And one idea is language can be, you know, the one source of it. Because uh, when you have to label the name of the items, if you are biased to use a certain sound, depending on the appearance, then it can narrow down the candidate sound. Yeah. And also, if you use that sound which fit to this correspondence, then other member in the group can potentially accept it better. Ah, it sounds like it. You can probably feel it, right? Yeah. If it's far off from your feeling, then you, I don't think that's the way to go. So, um, language when it comes to the vocal signal to be a kind of representation of the specific item, need to be accepted within the group. That's why it can be used in the communication. Mm -hmm. So through these uh, requirements, this bias can play a big role. And the many linguists actually think it's co-evolved, um, this uh, evolved together. Right. So as we use it more, we start to develop more bias, and that might be the case, but we don't know. Hmm. That's why we wanted to know that whether or not non-language animals or animals who doesn't equip any language also have similar correspondence. If that is the case, correspondence comes first, and then language try to employ it. Mm -hmm. And then we can get the order in evolution of the orders yeah. which comes first and or it's co-evolved. Yeah. So that's a, a recent topic for me in relation to the language evolution and cross-modal processing. So I, I feel like I've read or I've heard that uh, and with languages around the world, um, there seem to be some associations with the sound. Maybe the pitch matters, but like the sound or sharpness or right. roundness of a yes. sound fits the object that it's yes. trying to describe quite well, right? Right. The famous example is uh, Maruma and Takete. Nah, yes, yes, yes. Or yes, Buba yes. and Kiki. Yeah, yeah, right, exactly. Yes, uh, with those sounds with a round shape or more pointy shape, yeah. you feel like one sound fit better than the other. Yeah. So, um, yes, that's also another thing. Um, the simpler version is pitch and the color that yeah. might be more simpler aspect, but we have more complicated connections sure. as well. And uh, I don't... Uh, we already have found that you know some correspondence exists in non-human animals as well, but I don't want to say that's why cross-modal correspondence comes first and the language always apply um, 
the existing one. Mm -hmm. But uh, I think there's two steps. Already there is some connection and then language applied. But as we apply those connection in a language system, they can develop the secondary or thirdary connection. Right. So like those pointy and uh, more complicated sound could be just some product um, after we start to use it, maybe. Right. I'm kind of curious. So now, well, it's been decades that um, language uh, communication abilities have been studied in non-human species mm -hmm. and we've learned a whole lot about how those work and uh, there's been a lot of uh, auditory analyses about the different um, structures of, right. of sounds and things that are being produced and maybe even gestures mm -hmm. is there any evidence that something like that exists in non-language using but highly sophisticated communication systems outside of humans well the or <clears throat> Um, intensity, for example, that can be yeah. easily shared across yeah. the different modalities. And uh, when it comes to the gesture, for example, uh, if you make a big gesture to direct certain orientation, that also encoding distance, for example. Yeah. So like, uh, if the distance is far, you make a big gesture. Yeah. And those intensity of the behavior and the actual physical information seemingly connected in uh, chimpanzees and other apes mm. as well. And uh, other than that, um, I don't know for the behavior work. I mean, my study also, you know, touch on those uh, mm -hmm. corresponding space and order, for example. Um, in human case, like initial item in the order, somehow you place it on the space, on, mm -hmm. I mean, on the left in the space or top to bottom or something like that. So you have like certain way of usage of spatial information to coding the order information. And similar things happen in the chimpanzees as well. So um, that exists. And that's quite actually interesting study because human also think reading culture, the direction of the yeah. reading and writing potentially bias us from left to right. But a non-language animal, again, the chimpanzee show the same left to right yeah. bias. That means probably default um, can be from left to right. And the reading, writing direction can tune it. If you really trying to write from right to left, yeah. your attention direction can be switched, but the default wise probably left to right. So those things are ha happening, but it's still scattering. Mm. Everything's not really scattering and not completely into a package to talk about the whole story of the evolution. How do you test something like that in the lab with chimpanzees? For um, example, this ordering, this spatial ordering that, we ha yeah, that they have. Well, you know, we have very, not famous, but like a famous <laughs> task uh, for the chimpanzees with numbering task. Um, so we just presented multiple numbers on the screen from one to nine. Sometimes it's all adjacent, sometimes non-adjacent numbers are used. Um, and they already learn to touch from one or smaller to the bigger number. And in the training, we always place them in a random order, a random location. Means location cannot be a cue for them for which item should be answered first or touched first. And with those chimpanzees, we simply presented two numerals once a while. So within those numbering tasks, it's a test trial, I mean, sparsed into the baseline trials. Mm -hmm. And in a test trial, only two numerals presented, one and nine, mm -hmm. or something one and five, or five and nine. And then always located left to right or right to left, means one on the left or one on the right. Mm -hmm. So we have two conditions, like match to the left to right orientation or right to left. And all the subjects, uh, no matter what handiness they have, 
um, the show left to right is easier, means solved quicker. Yeah. And uh, handedness doesn't affect means it's not simply the local, I mean, kinematic motion or easiness of the kinematic motion from left to right or right to left doesn't matter. Um, where it's presented actually affect even though they have been trained in a context that the location cannot be a cue at all mm -hmm. for the task. Mm -hmm. So it's almost spontaneous or automatic that whenever you process order, you somehow try to locate from the left to right. Mm -hmm. So even they cannot avoid it. That sounds like quite strong evidence for me to just say space and order are connected to each other. Yeah, and even in a social context. So you have another <laughs> study that I quite like, and I mean, I like when you yeah, present right. it, but uh, the, the, the idea of how dom dominance hierarchies right. are also mapped spatially. So this yes. is all part of your metaphorical mapping right. um, research. Mm -hmm. But can you explain that? Uh, sure. Those studies as well. Um, well, in human language, in many cultures, many languages, the rank, social rank can be um, indicated by the high or low which is originally for the mm -hmm. spatial information. And uh, high rank individual means definitely, you know, the stronger in, in whatever context, maybe physical, maybe in a social, you know, doesn't matter, but the rank wise is better rank. Mm -hmm. And uh, I get interested in space and the order can be connected to each other and that might be reflected in a language mm -hmm. in the same way. So I tested chimpanzee whether or not they place the higher rank individual in the high inner space or they might not see any correspondence. That's mm -hmm. a question actually. And there I haven't trained them to focus on the rank at all. So in a training, what I did is just make them identify the individual. So I use a familiar picture or the picture of the familiar individual to the subject and they have to match uh, the identity of the picture. So first they saw one picture on a screen, like a, let's say individual A and then after it's gone, you have two choices, either the same individual or um, different individual. And if they can make uh, make a proper touch means if they can choose the same identity or individual uh, from what they saw before, they can get uh, reinforcement. So they, are, they only pay attention to the identity, not the rank. But in a test trial, what they did is just those two choice located horizontally no, sorry, the vertically, and the in half of the time, no, it's actually one fourth. But I mean, there is four conditions. But main question is, high rank individual located in a high space and low rank individual. Oh wait, low rank individual located in low in a space. So that's kind of corresponding condition. Mm -hmm. And the another one is of course it's flipped. Low rank individual now placed on the high in a space, and the high rank individual lo located on the low. So if they feel this is a bit weird or unnatural, then it will be more difficult for them. So I want to see that is there any difference between those two different arrangements of the uh, choices? And it does, I mean, it did. Yeah. So whenever they see the high rank individual uh, located on the bottom of the screen, they have slower in the latency means they take more time to solve the task. And the task is very simple, identity matching. So the performance rate, the correct rate is almost same across the conditions, but arrangement is like a misarranged and they have more time that they need. Mm -hmm. um, so it's kind of hesitation or they try to touch on the top and then stop it and then move into the right. you know, bottom or something like that happening. So 
again, I mean, we haven't tried, I mean, we, we haven't trained them to pay attention to the rank, but whenever they see their familiar individual, seemingly they extract those information and then that's connected the space and um, that affects their own performance. Yeah. And I guess it's quite interesting. Yeah, I mean, it's a pretty clear example of some cognitive dissonance that the animals right. must be feeling. When <laughs> True. And they, I, I like how when you present that, you usually use a picture of your old boss. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that's, nobody, a, that's easy to chat. Nobody either, can right? ever imagine it being below the rest yeah. of the people in the hierarchy. <laughs> I mean, that's always happening for like, you know, you know the structure chart, for example, yeah, of the exactly. company yeah. or, you know, always put the higher rank or the bigger yeah. things on the top and... So that, that's implemented in a language quite well, or yeah. the, our our system quite yeah. well, and seemingly that's exist in the chimpanzees. But uh, for that, we cannot hundred percent exclude the possibility of the experience mm -hmm. and the space usage wise. Of course, high rank individual doesn't have to be always in a high in a space, but whenever they face to each other, in a natural communication between those dominant and subordinate individuals dominant one is covering the subordinate body or like a going over i see so there's some connected um spatial information for the rank in a daily life yeah not i mean it's not the case for the where they stay but there's potentially some connection yeah that's why actually i moved to the number task which we can control the experience and uh, we can make the situation that location cannot be a cue yeah. for the task at all yeah so um that's connected actually okay well so here's kind of a, a an open-ended question though uh, maybe from your own personal experience working here for for uh, more than a decade but obviously out of this lab and out of many other chimpanzee um cognition labs we're constantly challenged with being faced with the things that we thought were quote-unquote uniquely human it turns out that there's some aspects of that in other species as well and we know that scientifically but as somebody who spends a lot of time with the animals has there been anything over that time that you've been really surprised about in terms of what cognitive abilities they have or maybe emotional capacity right or anything um, like that? that's a very important question and good point actually and uh, initial stage of the chimpanzee studies I guess like people are more eager to find what is shared with human mm -hmm. and we have accumulated so many studies just you know showing the similarity mm -hmm. between human and chimpanzees and which is a very important uh, contribution to the scientific understanding of human evolution but meanwhile the more we see those similarities the more i eager to see the differences because <laughs> uh, with those similar structure of the body or structure of the brain I mean, size is different, but also uh, group complexity among the primate chimpanzee has a relatively complex uh, social society um, or social system. So, um, yes, I mean, similarity is interesting, but now more to the um, different part. And uh, interesting things to me, and it's still not new but still surprising why this is so different is like many non-human animals including also chimpanzees are very bad at um how can i say the mm, 
I don't know it's why is a good term for that like um, it's kind of connected to conceptualization issues but um, we cannot really treat multiple items in the same way mm -hmm. um, so human again we put a label for the category and then we treat it as if it is an actual the object mm -hmm. whenever I talk about Apple you can create quite easily you can imagine Apple yeah. in your uh, perception or in your mind as well but the chimpanzees we can't train them to label it like let's say we just prepare three four different symbols and train them to use or assign those symbols to the group of pictures whatever Apple they say they have to touch the symbol which is assigned to the Apple they can learn it but it's so difficult for them and uh, even after they learn it they even treat this symbol um, they cannot treat this symbol as a similar information as Apple so for human case for example if you learn Apple the term Apple means actual Apple then you can do both direction means after you see the Apple you can say this is the Apple but also whenever you hear the sound Apple you can immediately reflect uh, thinking about Apple so the term you can assign but also whenever you perceive it you can get the actual information out of it and then you can think about Apple but for chimpanzees and many other species or I have to say even even in chimpanzees uh, after we train it what they learn is if you see apples you have to pick this symbol so A then B mm -hmm. it's not A equal B right and that's a quite uh, I mean striking difference and originally this difficulty found like two three decades ago so it's not new at all but the more we see the similarity and the advanced um, cognitive abilities in the chimpanzees among the primate lineage or mammal lineage you mm -hmm. know the more it's surprising how it's so difficult for mm -hmm. them to to equally treat those information and for them the level of the representation or symbolization would be much more restricted in, than the humans and language definitely facilitated but uh, we kind of expected to see the, some seed of the similarity in, in those species as well but um, never be like A equal B and all training is basically a chain of the um, understanding if you see certain information then you have to do this way so it cannot be just automatically flipped. Mm. Um, that's a quite shocking and uh, striking difference, and I still think it's so interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it is true that we we get focused so much on how amazing the abilities of some other species are relative right. to our own, but then sometimes you get stuck on these things that for yeah, us seem exactly. second nature. Exactly. So how how do you think that? Um, what do you think that tells us about the current way we think about? Uh, even just the field of comparative cognition or what are like the maybe the way the brain works um, mm -hmm. differently across different species what do we kind of take out of that information well I, I guess I mean that's not only from this specific one issue sure. of the you know symbolization but like uh, again to some extent comes to the language but not the function of the communication itself but the uh, level of the symbolization how it can be beneficial for the human current life 
is uh, one quite uh, big information that we can get out of this, I guess, because um, our language or our world, which attach or assign to the certain object, can be treated similar way. Mm-hmm. As I said, in chimpanzee, it cannot be the case, but for humans, term apple can be treated in a similar way to the actual apple. Mm-hmm. That means you can cut out the information from the environment and carry that information with you. Mm-hmm. And this is very important because you now have a way to think about the item which is not existing in your current environment. And that would uh, definitely expand um, the range of the time and space that you can think about. Um, I don't want to say animals don't have any um, idea about the future. Mm-hmm. They have probably think about the future to some extent, but mm-hmm. the range mm-hmm. is so different. Mm-hmm. And they can also process something that's invisible. They can hold memory and then they can think about what those others which is behind the screen can move to the you know another part. Yeah. So they can estimate, they can predict, but the range is all limited in a very small range. Right. And uh, language or this way of processing or symbolization in human make it make make for us to possible really think about like a far apart from the current environment. Yeah. And even probably we don't experience as a real experience for the future or for the you know something in a part I mean far away from you. But at least you can think about it and you can phrase it. Yeah. And then by phrasing it, you can think even further. Yeah. So that's a kind of like um, it's ratchet way of the yeah. evolution. If you do this, then you can do that. Yeah. And then that also make it possible for us to do further. So um, existence of this language or the, um, how do we say that, symbolization or representation processing make it very much human unique in a sense not only for the communication but like how much we can think about future yeah how much you can think about like something that you cannot see yeah yeah that's perfect i was gonna kind of end this part of the the podcast by asking about the kind of the big questions left in comparative cognition and Mm. i know that yeah language and recursive thinking and these kind of things are uh, really still it's like, long lasting going I mean <laughs> yeah 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 but it, the, the research continues to be fascinating but uh, uh, to just transition back before we start to close out the interview um, to transition back to students coming into your lab mm-hmm. and this could be like in the past and then going forward with your future research but what do they I mean if you can answer this that's great I'm kind of curious what do they get wrong about chimpanzees when they first arrive here and maybe something they get wrong about how they think about doing their research and what will be possible and what will not be possible. Um, well, what did you get wrong? <laughs> I mean, for me, I have had a long, I mean, not long, but enough experiences as a non-human animal for the research, as a researcher, because I got the PhD in Kyoto University, mm-hmm. not with a chimp, but the other primate and pigeons uh, work. And then moved to the States for my postdoc there and work on a research monkey there. And uh, to me, I kind of established the how to approach the animals and how to scientifically analyze those data. And so it's, it's two different story, I guess. To me, the surprise and the big, not mistake, but like uh, what I feel so different when I come to here is like chimps are curious about you. Yeah, that's a. I mean, 
you know, cappuccines, they are looking at you. They are trying to reach out to you for the food and so But they observe me. The chimpanzees <laughs> observe me. That was first shocking moment to me. Like, hey, this guy just looking to me for a long time. And then even like, a, looks like thoughtful way of I mean, sitting. <laughs> like, uh, it's a, um, I, I don't know. It, I, it's, it's, it's too much anthropomorphic, but um, they sit quietly and then put the hand on the chin and then gazing at you and then <laughs> checking who the hell are you. <laughs> Uh, it's it's I I thought I had established enough for like you know I don't I don't want to do any anthropomorphic way of perception about animals other than my pets I mean, my pets are different <laughs> they they special, are, they, yeah they are special, special pets <laughs> <laughs> but chimpanzee just makes me feel like hmm this is something different that I have never seen in the, I mean I have seen before yeah well I mean Franz Duval calls it anthropodenial. True. the other side of that so yeah. we, i yeah. think you have that experience where maybe there's some somewhere in between there is. i guess um but that's that's just something i feel like so different and mm -hmm. i mean weird as well actually um but i mean when it comes to the scientific work of course we just try to get rid of those yeah. um too much anthropomorphic way of understanding but um that was first uh, moment that i saw the chimpanzees wait a sec these guys are just different <laughs> i don't want to say it's more human like but it just looks like they are thoughtful yeah sure and i don't think it would be wrong to say closer well, at yeah. least we share more similarities with each other than you would with that's, other true. Species. that's true or well, that probably means that you know their attitude can be more similarly interpreted in yeah. humans and yeah. i don't want to say which is more thoughtful among the species sure but it's more easy for us to think about yeah. that way. Yeah, that's yeah. a that's a probably way that we can phrase it. Our flawed reality. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. But for the students or for the visitors that you know they come to the institute uh, first and then see the chimpanzees. Um, sometimes they are expecting that you know chimpanzees are friend to them. And of course, as a researcher, we want to bring a good environment for chimpanzees. I mean, partly because, as I said before, to better explore the cognitive abilities in the chimpanzees, they need to be in a natural setup as much as possible. That's one reason. But also as a responsibility of the researchers, we keep them in a captivity. We have to think about how we can enrich their you know, life. Um, so in both meaning, important to feel close to them mm -hmm. but uh, we are not friend to them mm -hmm. um if i was if i were a friend to them i don't want to keep them in a captivity mm -hmm. but again we want to do that for our own scientific purpose then i want to put them a lot of, i mean you know effort to improve their life but that's not because i want to be a friend of them but like Partly because our research findings always try to, you know, promoting the idea chimpanzees are so similar to humans. And that is very important for the first uh, stage of the chimpanzee experiment because on the time we had still big dichotomy like human versus non-humans. And uh, in a public level, I mean. So we want to emphasize the point that, you know, we are continuum in a life cycle, I mean, life evolution evolution of life um, so 
it's not only humans other species can do it that's a quite big important message for the public that you know we human is not only one unique species but mm -hmm. we are connected to the other species but that propaganda or that story makes people easy to believe that you know we can understand each other more easily than the other species and probably we can be a good friend or even TV programs sometimes talking about those uh, chimpanzee subjects or participants here as a really personalized individual which is true I mean they have a strong personality in the characters mm -hmm. but if you emphasize too much about those things with a lot of like anecdotal story about the interesting event then people can easily think they can be a friend yeah so the problem that issue can cause is fast distance between you and I mean the students and participants they easily try to come close physically I mm -hmm. mean that is a problematic chimpanzee can be a risky animal yeah as far as you you keep the rules it's totally fine they know how to handle us we know how to handle them and nothing terrible happens but if you immediately go over the border they can be rage on it right yeah so that's a scary part and second mentally too close to them mm -hmm. it's coming to the point of the anthropomorphic understanding but they have already big expectation they should be able to this do this or mm -hmm. do that and that's sometimes go against or the problematic to think about the research question right I don't want to say you have to doubt every single thing but uh, at least you need to make a critical thinking is this really possible is this the way to go is this like you know so for the methodology you have to do that also for the research topics you have to apply the similar way of thinking yeah and uh, to to make it sure you approach the proper question with a proper methodology but if you have a strong too strong belief that they should be able to do one way one thing that's I guess uh, dim their eyes I guess yeah so that's uh, something you have to or the students have to go through if they have that expectation yeah okay. and I mean luckily these days I don't think that's the case though more public might feel that way but like uh, yeah. students they do more I mean better understand what chimpanzees can be and they also understand what the scientific approach means yeah but like uh, on a transition way I mean it could it happened right yeah I mean the the chimpanzees at PRI and and just almost anywhere it's such an iconic species right. and, and people form their own ideas about mm -hmm. what it should and of course there's a lot of people too who you mentioned if you want to be their friends then you probably want what's best for them that doesn't maybe include them being in um, in small spaces but uh, the the PRI or the the, the e-hub uh, chimpanzees we'll get to that in a second yeah right um you know are are in a good space and but they they are also iconic within japan and mm -hmm. i don't know if it's still true they still receive birthday presents or I something guess. every year i mean <laughs> not a lot not a lot but sure. like, uh, yeah for the boss day of the southern chimpanzees yeah. day yeah some of them are we you know sending out gifts yeah like, foods basically yeah. yeah yeah so they're kind of in the public eye yeah and they're these kind of um uh, public facing figures mm -hmm. so with the reorganization of the Primate Research Institute and now the the eHub Evolutionary Center for the um, uh, sorry Center for the Evolutionary Origins mm -hmm. of Human Behavior, uh, we know that uh, the chimpanzees are staying put. So there may be somebody, uh, some of the listeners would be interested to know about that. 
And can you tell us what maybe the plans are for for your work for the lab and, and what kinds of things you're going to be trying to do now? Right. Um, you mentioned earlier a little bit that you're exploring a little bit more in this uh, cross-modal correspondence yes. and things like that. And uh, yes, we still have the chimpanzees here. I mean, the name is changed Ehab, but mm -hmm. um, we have them. And the, as far as we have them in the captivities, I would say we have to reach out to them because mm -hmm. that's a responsibility for us to have animals in the captivities. Mm -hmm. um, so as far as they're here, we're going to keep uh, testing them. But meanwhile, they have, I mean, as I said, it's also contributing public outreach activities, not directly, but you know, yeah. they are finding some on their behaviors and their cognition. I mean, broadly um, shared in the public and uh, they, in that sense, they contribute a lot for the public awareness of the science um, on the chimpanzees. So we also have a responsibility to keep them like in a good environment yeah. and um, in which environment I, I would say. So that's a responsibility part and the research part, as far as we are here, we have to explore because we don't want to keep them for nothing. But uh, that doesn't mean we want to waste them. Yeah. Um, um, so both directions, both sides, the one who, I mean, those species contribute a lot. So we have to take them in the good care. But meanwhile, we don't want to just keep them. Yeah. We, we just actually need to explore the um, their cognitive abilities more. Yeah. But meanwhile, we don't running any reproduction program anymore. Mm -hmm. Means that. Uh, uh, the current um, majority of the individuals around their forties, and that means it's kind of human society. But like you know, we have more seniors in ten years yeah. or so. Probably we have like some individuals start to passing away. I see. So that affect onto the research part in terms of the subject number. Yeah. So at some point we gradually closing down the chimp lab, not because this restructuring happens, but sure. because simply. Uh, their lifespan is not like a forever. It's yeah. basically we have some limitations. So. Yeah, demographics. Yeah, um, that's a fact. Um, but we still have a, some younger generation, which is around twenty-two years now, I guess. Um, so if we could find a good international team to work on a chimpanzee cognition as a multiple, I mean, right. you know, um, places, then possibly we can still keep going. But only with the EHUB, I don't think we can keep running the chimpanzee experiment um, after probably 10 years or so, because mm -hmm. the democracy, uh, democracy, demographic? The demographic, yeah, the demographic, demographic issue, yeah. Democracy is different, I mean, that's what <laughs> we do in the Japanese government. But, yeah, demographic issues, uh, that affect. Um, but from the beginning, I guess, general direction or movement in a primary cognition lab move into the joint uh, research because mm -hmm. um, even this age doesn't matter or doesn't affect the some species always there's an issue of how many individuals you can keep in the lab they cost a lot and some in institute doesn't want to keep them or they cannot um, house enough number of the subject um, in those situations always uh, bring the issue for like number of subject in the primary cognition work is generally small yeah and duplication and those things are also another issue but like 
to solve those issues together, I guess making good team across a different lab and applying the similar methodology to working together that's solved the issue for the first um, number of subject and the also the replication issue as well because yeah. uh, if multiple places working together with a similar topic with a similar methodology and get the some not united but like a similar result together that is very strong so um for chimps uh if we can find those partners we want to do that direction as well yeah yeah Man, I hope, like everybody else on the planet, that we can start <laughs> our international cooperations right. again. Um, it's getting very frustrated. Uh, okay, so just maybe this is a little bit of a left turn, and we'll close the interview right after this. But I just wanted to uh, put you on the spot a little bit with something that I found. So I found, in addition to like the various scientific papers you've put out with data using the chimpanzees here and mm -hmm. other species that you've studied, I noticed... And this has the two reasons why I'm bringing this up. Um, the first one is about target audience, uh, who you're speaking to. Mm -hmm. And the second one is about is language. Um, so on your research map, which is like the... Oh, you see the research it? map? <laughs> yeah, I like the Orchid. Orchid, Orchid yeah, 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 that's better. <laughs> yeah, so the research map, which is like a e-researcher database that we use yeah. here in Japan that lists up all of your accomplishments and yes. papers and things. I found a couple of uh, titles that you've written in Japanese language, mm -hmm. which I found kind of interesting. There was like the Tasha wo moiyaru kokoro no shinka. Oh, yeah. So that's something translated like the evolution of a caring heart or a thoughtful mind uh, or something like that for others. Right, it's kind of more like altruistic behavior. Right, yeah, right, right. Yeah. Altruistic behavior, and then the second one was uh, where is it here? Reichoruigaku sha uchu, and that translates roughly as primatologist meets the universe. <laughs> yeah, right. You found them. Yeah, can we? Can you explain a little bit about what what the target here is and what what the the focus was? Well, the first one is quite uh, simple. It's a really responsibility or altruism work. So in a, in a context of the social cognition mm -hmm. in primate, how much they can be altruistic yeah. is one big question for a long time. And the um, we have done with my students on the time, I guess, maybe postal, the students, I guess, um, applying the touchscreen paradigm to get the better resolution of the behavior to explore how much they can be altruistic. I see. And uh, that's a uh, Japanese one is, um, it's targeting the public audience and yeah. then just introducing our finding there. I see. Yeah. And basically like, um, if you get enough number of trials, we see a gradual transition from the selfish behavior to the altruistic behavior. Yeah. So like at some point they, they want to do more. Yeah. They want to care about the others. But initially they want to prioritize their own. And But if in a certain pressure, of course, slightly you have to adjust your behavior to the partner. Yeah. So that's transition you can see in the data. Yeah. Yeah, that's the first one. And second one is... Um, more interesting one i guess um yes the primatology meets the universe um the universe is right but it's like uh space science right in the context of space science because now in a space science i don't know what exactly the english term for this unit in the kyoto university but uh kyoto university has one research unit um which is 
promoting the scientific approach to to how can I say explore the issues related to the um, finding the habitable planet in 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 the in universe I don't know, in in a sure. universe yeah yeah so to do that like there is many study going on for example and 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 also terraforming is another issue so if there is no natural planet which can be habitable then how you can transform it or something like that or what is a limit what is a minimum requirement for the habitability mm -hmm. um that's the issue and most of the study is talking about like how we can grow the plant in no gravity, for example. Yeah. Or how we can filtering the water or, I mean, I, I don't know, it's like from the all different level, I guess, but like how to make water stay in the planet, not really, you know, the steamed up. Or like so, so many um, of those uh, more physical and, and um, biological questions well i don't know what is a even proper term yeah i mean like life support systems anyway yeah, support system yeah. yeah and when they think about what is a good supporting system for us to stay in the universe they hit an idea we have to understand human as a biological view from the biological viewpoint mm -hmm. and they hit on Hey, why not including some primatologists or the <laughs> people who is working on primate? Because evolution create a current format of yeah. the human beings, and that has uh, also been some restriction which environment you can stay, or what is important information for you. As I said, our perceptual system is basically a product of evolution to extract the important information in the environment. Then, if the environment changed, our perceptual system also can be changed. But how much it can be adjusted? How much we need to suffer mm -hmm. from the difference in uh, in uh, um, environment? Mm -hmm. So that's the reason why they want to include some cognitive scientists or comparative cognitive scientists to their team, and me and some more actually from the Primate Research Institute on the time joined the program. Mm -hmm. And there I wrote a document like uh, why this unit or this uh, area of research invite me to join and where is the connection yeah and uh, connection is basically comparative cognitive science always thinking about the interaction between environment and the cognitive abilities not the space or universe but it's more like underwater on a tree on the ground or in a social system if you have a different environment you are tuning your own cognitive abilities on a direction that you can survive better yeah so this scheme can better i mean nicely fit to the idea how we can adjust to this space yeah. or what environment is necessary for us to stay um not to stay comfortable but stay okay yeah yeah i understand i mean if you think about almost any what you would call really good, solid science fiction space mm -hmm. film mm -hmm. or story. I think the <laughs> the uh, elements related to social interaction, mm -hmm. the, some might say, degradation of the human mind right, right. in space or the psychological side I, of it yeah, seems agreed. like such a huge... Agreed. And the interesting is these days, not because of those sci I mean, space 
uh, fiction things, but like a metaverse, for example. Yeah. That can be another thing that's connected to the same issue. Yeah, interesting. If you put the environment in a virtual way, what is the necessary information that you need to take that you can stay as human as we are? Yeah. Or what can be changed? Or is that change is preferred change or something that you don't like? You know, so like uh, if you think about like uh, you are applying or you are embedding or I don't know, you are located in a different environment, either virtual or space or some other environment. It's always good to think about what is a factor that tuning your mind mm -hmm. and what makes you human. Or if something changed, you might not feel that you are human anymore. Mm -hmm. So that's a part ethical issue exists, but also more biological issue exists as well. I think that's a good place to stop. And the next time we have another one of these, hopefully before 10 years, we might start with the applying the metaverse to the chimpanzee cognition unit here at, at eHub. Um, but until then, thanks, Dr. Ikumadachi, for joining me on the Primate Cast. You've been listening to the Primate Cast, a podcast series dedicated to all things primatology and wildlife science, to the conservation of species, and to the sharing of scientific knowledge. The podcast is hosted and produced by Andrew McIntosh, with artwork from Chris Martin and music from Andre Gonsalves. It is brought to you by the Center for International Collaboration and Advanced Studies in Primatology at Kyoto University's Center for the Evolutionary Origins of Human Behavior. Visit us online at theprimatecast.com and follow our social media feeds on Facebook and Twitter at The Primate Cast. Drop us a line anytime to say hello, to tell us what you think about the show, and to suggest future guests for the podcast. <laughs>